0: The first use of the term rock and roll as a descriptor of music was by Alan Freed, who changed the name of his Moondog Coronation Ball to Alan Freed's Great Rock and Roll Party. This was due to an injunction from a street musician who had been using the name Moondog before Freed used it for his on-air persona. Prior to that, rockin' and rollin' were generally used separately as euphemisms for sex. Tonight, we're starting at the beginning. Well, not the very very beginning, but how we got rock and roll. Where did it start? What are the roots of America's great contribution to teenagers all over the world? We're going to look at what factors created the sonic boom we call rock and roll. Welcome to the Music Scope. <laughs> Hi everyone. First of all, I wanted to say thank you, and I'm glad that you're here with me tonight. With our new show, I wanted to share my experiences in peeling back the layers of music to see where we come from musically and culturally. And what better way to start than with rock and roll? It's the glue that has bound us all together and created so many subgenres. but it all comes back to a sonic boom that happened in the early 50s. Not only has rock affected popular music, but it's also affected the world by becoming the first music to give teenagers a voice all their own, and complete defiance of their parents. It contributed to the civil rights movement, and it redefined what an artist was capable of on their own. It's been a form of expression for youth all over the world, and goes through an endless cycle of reinvention. So let's go back to the first inklings of this bold new sound. First... We need to set the scene of life leading up to the 40s and early 50s. Up until that time, music was segregated by race and distance. TV didn't exist, and radio was still relatively new. Most families that could afford a radio only had one, and it resembled a piece of furniture that everyone gathered around like a fireplace. Music and radio were largely regional, with a few networks that broadcasted primetime variety shows and offered some popular singers. In the South, the effects of Reconstruction and Jim Crow were still being felt by African Americans. America had two very distinct and separate populations, separated by race, each with its own culture and music. Rock and roll would ultimately bring these cultures together by combining blues, jazz, country, and pop music to form this new form of music. Now, if we go back to the beginning The birth of rock and roll started with the automobile, specifically the used automobile. In the 1930s and 40s, the first wave of automobiles was traded in for new models. As they became more affordable, many African-American families were able to purchase their very first car. The black population of the South began to move to northern cities that offered better jobs and less risk of racial violence. The Great Migration brought African Americans to cities such as Chicago, Detroit, New York, Seattle, and Los Angeles. They established new communities within these cities, and they brought the language, food, and music of the South with them. With new jobs and better wages, many families found themselves with disposable income for the first time. Being in a new place, they also looked for where they could buy the goods they were familiar with in the South. At that time, Radio stations were regional and segregated. Larger radio stations belonged to networks such as NBC, CBS, or ABC, and were generally geared towards white audiences. They would broadcast a variety of programming, such as news, children's shows, serials, classical music, popular music, and sometimes country. As cities faced this influx of new faces in Southern culture, stations began to pop up or change their format to appeal to this large African-American population that brought a new target for advertisers. Although they would not usually have the same power and reach as their white counterparts, these stations would bring black music to the air for the first time and provide a key ingredient to launching rock and roll. Stations geared towards African-Americans included WHBQ and WDIA in Memphis, which featured Rufus Thomas and B.B. King, WLAC in Nashville, WGST in Atlanta, WJW in Cleveland, and that featured the self-proclaimed moondog, Alan Freed, who would eventually move to WINS in New York and become rock and roll's de facto ambassador. As radio grew, so did the emergence of independent record labels. The big change here was that labels weren't accountable to advertisers or boards that were worried about their image, Independents were able to record anything and anyone that they wanted to, and they often sold directly to radio stations and record shops. Independent labels began to grow across the country, with Atlantic, located in Washington, D.C., and then New York, Chess and Chicago, and perhaps the most innovative and daring of them all, Sun Records, which was founded by Sam Phillips in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, Sam Phillips' experience at WLAY in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, had influenced him profoundly. It was a radio station that had an open format, and it appealed to both white and black artists and listeners. He began to record local musicians and sell the rights to other labels. Among the local musicians to come his way in 1951 were Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats, and that included their enterprising 19-year-old music director, who went by Ike Turner? They recorded what many consider the first bona fide rock and roll song, Rocket 88, in March of 1951. The sounds captured on the record are gritty and thick with overdriven guitar and blaring saxophone, and it gives the music a distorted edge. The beat swings and feels much heavier than anything out at the time. It was a regional hit, and Ike Turner, spread the word about Sun Studios, bringing Sun an unprecedented line of talent. Soon after, another record to be cut by an artist that Sam Phillips called his greatest discovery. Helen Wolf's How Many More Years was cut in August 1951 and gave the dragging beat and distorted guitar a voice to match them. Wolf's gritty, raspy vocal gives the record an urgency and drive that was unheard of in 1951. And just to put this in perspective, some of the top hits of that year were Unforgettable by Nat King Cole, Come On to My House by Rosemary Clooney, and just about the closest thing there was to rock and roll was Les Paul and Mary Ford's How High the Moon. Now due to a more mobile population and advances in radio technology, car manufacturers began installing radios into cars in the 1920s. Although prohibitively expensive at first, companies such as Motorola began producing components at lower prices, allowing radios to be included as a stock item in most models by the late 1940s. This allowed musicians and listeners alike to pick up radio stations as they drove through town, allowing white ears to hear black music in the privacy of their automobiles. Radios at home were often controlled by spouses and parents. Car radios offered the exciting sounds of R&B and jump blues, and it ended up inspiring other musicians to incorporate aspects of this new music into their sound, just as jazz music had influenced songwriters and musicians in the swing music of the 1930s and 40s. Things bubbled just under the surface for a few years, Segregation was still deeply embedded in the South. But white musicians paid attention to rhythm and blues and gospel coming out of black radio stations. Black musicians, likewise, heard country music from the Grand Ole Opry and a lot of Texas swing music. In 1954, a Western swing band recorded a song that they heard on the radio. Having been inspired by artists such as Big Joe Turner, they were free to record it with their new record label, Decca. But it wasn't until the following year that the song was a hit, after appearing in the movie The Blackboard Jungle, a film about, well, what else, dangerous rebellious youth. Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and his Comets would bring rock and roll to the American mainstream. Soon, other songs began to infiltrate the charts as well, including one that brought the sound of overdriven guitar originally heard at Sun Studios to the masses and it would go on to inspire countless youths to pick up the guitar, Chuck Berry's Maybelline. Chuck Berry was a guitar player out of Memphis, Tennessee, and he had been recruited by Chess after Sam Phillips refused to offer Chess Records any more contracts, convinced that they had stolen his artist from under him. Chuck Berry's stream of hits would establish the electric guitar as the instrument most associated with rock music and inspire almost every rock guitar player that came afterwards. Overnight, rock music took the country by storm. Little Richard, who was a wild man, wearing makeup and shiny suits, hit the scene and caused a stir with Tutti Fruity." It was a song whose lyrics had been changed to Tutti Fruity, Oh Rudy from Tutti Fruity, Good Booty. Doo-Wop came to the forefront with Only You by The Platters. Doo-Wop had been sung primarily on city street corners by young guys who didn't have enough money for instruments. They would imitate the sounds of their voices, giving the unique sound that broke big that year. Doo-wop consisted mostly of ballads that encapsulated teenagers' dreams of true love. This vocal approach, combined with the backing of instrumental groups and a good dose of gospel inspiration, would help give birth to soul just a few years later. Now, New York DJ Alan Freed was constantly promoting rock and roll on the radio, helping to create its rebellious and youthful image. He used teenage slang throughout his broadcast, and he held the first big rock and roll concert. Rock and roll was moving into the mainstream, even though conservative parents resisted. 1956 opened with a new voice that would break rock and roll wide open and cement its place in popular culture. Sam Phillips had said earlier that if he could find a white man that could sing like a black man, he would be a millionaire. In 1954, a truck driver from Tupelo, Mississippi, stopped at Sun Studios to record a song for his mother's birthday. Sam Phillips was convinced by his staff to record more songs by the young artist and ended up selling his contract to RCA Records after a version of Arthur Crudup's That's Alright Mama became a regional hit. In January 1956, RCA released their first single featuring Elvis Presley, Heartbreak Hotel. It was an instant smash. Elvis had a string of hits, including Hound Dog, Don't Be Cruel, and Love Me Tender that would solidify his status as the king of rock and roll. Elvis was all over the radio, in posters and advertising. He was young and handsome, and he conveyed the attitude of edginess and sexiness that was the core of rock and roll. The biggest impact that Elvis had was on June 5, 1956, on the Milton Berle Show. He unveiled his version of Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog, and he swung his hips much to the horror of white parents. Elvis would also appear on the Steve Allen Show and Ed Sullivan Show that year. Everywhere he went, controversy and advertising dollars followed. Television made rock and roll not just a cultural force but a financial force as well. American bandstands soon followed, with Dick Clark bringing rock and roll acts to the small screen and teenagers not missing a chance to glance at their heroes. Throughout 1956, rock and roll brought money to all who were involved. Advertisers, publishers, concert promoters, TV shows, radio, and record companies all profited from rock and roll. The artists rarely had independent agents to fight for them and were taken advantage of regularly in complex contracts that left them with little but enough to live on. Nonetheless, the roster of rock and roll hit makers continue to grow. 1956 saw a list of hits that is still renowned for its impact on American popular music. Gene Vincent, B. a Fats Domino, Blueberry Hill, and My Blue Heaven, The Platters, The Great Pretender, Johnny Cash, I Walk the Line, Little Richard, Long Tall Sally, Chuck Berry's Roll Over Beethoven, and Bill Haley's See You Later Alligator. One of the biggest and least discussed aspects of rock and roll's impact is how it gave teenagers of the 50s a unique sense of identity that had never been around before. Up to that point, teenagers were expected to follow in the footsteps of their parents, and really little else. They listened to their parents' music, wore their parents' clothes, and were expected to carry on the same attitudes that their families had before them. Rock and roll disturbed that flow and brought about a defiance that infuriated parents and divided the generation that had lived through the hardship of the Depression from the generation that would live off the economic fat of the land in 1950s America. Another area that was challenged by rock and roll was race. Rock gave black artists a chance to play black music without having to filter it for white audiences. Rock and roll hits came from artists of any color. Fats Domino, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, The Platters, and Bo Diddley all carried their inventive influence to a generation of white teenagers who danced to their records regardless of the artist's skin color music served as a conduit for the civil rights movement's influence, bringing the message to black and white teenagers all over the country, helping to spark widespread white solidarity with black activists in the 1960s. Between 1955 and 1956, rock and roll sparked a worldwide culture shift, giving power and independence to youth that had never been experienced and would influence music for generations to come. Artists were inspired to follow the lead of Sam Phillips and later Buddy Holly in becoming independent writers, engineers, and artists. An entire generation of British teens would take the influence from America and return less than a decade later during the British invasion. That would change music even more. The rebellious spirit that inspired rock in the first place can be found at the core of all of its future iterations. From soul, to punk, to metal, to funk, to hip-hop, they all share the common thread of fierce independence, ingenuity, and above all, fun. I hope you've enjoyed this dive into the beginnings of rock and roll. You can hear all of the songs we discussed in the podcast on Spotify and Apple Music by searching up Music Scope, or clicking on the link included in the description below. I hope you join me next week when we explore the legendary Sun Studios and its crucial role in bringing rock and roll to the masses. Thanks so much for tuning into the Music Skills.